Sorry for the interruption of the podcast, but I just wanted to put this plug in here for two authors I know, Michael LeBourne and Braden Pierce, who have just come out with their book, Taste and See It, which has been hitting the market and claims to provide the necessary tools to help you overcome temptation. The person they quoted on the back, Jordan Fralin, a person that I also know, states that if you feel stuck in any sort of destructive or habitual pattern of sin, this book is for you. You're already free. You just might not know it yet. It's time to step out of the darkness and into the light of Jesus's love for you. Definitely check out the link to this book in the description. And now back to the podcast. How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of the many questions we ask about our past. I'm your host today, and with me is Ethan McDaniel and our special guest, Dr. Wagner, professor of anthropology at Southern Illinois University, as well as director of the CAI for Center of Archaeological Investigation. Thanks for joining us, guys. All right. Together, we're going to be talking about Native American mythology and specifically North American and cover everything from how beliefs affected Native American society, culture, European colonization and enigmas surrounding Native American mythology today. But before we begin, I'd like to remind you that you can check our Facebook and Twitter pages for more information on the episodes, as well as to ask questions and stay up to date on information concerning the podcast. We also have a community page for more information and to interact with the podcast. And don't forget to show your support for this podcast by donating on Anchor and or our Patreon page, which gives you exclusive access to bonus content and more for as little as $3. You can also support us by joining the community page and sharing any information you come across. In the end, we're going to give you some shout outs and uh, shout out those who have already liked and followed our social media platforms. And we thank you for the growth we've been experiencing. So don't forget to like, follow, comment, and even write a review on any of our platforms as we really appreciate it. All right. Now getting into the episode. So, uh, Dr. Wagner, for our first question, uh, for those of you who don't know, or for those of the, for those of people who don't know, sorry, uh, provide a little background on uh, who you are and your expertise with uh, North American Native Americans. Sure, I am an archaeologist at SIU Carbondale, and I've been doing archaeology for forty years. But one of my main interests is prehistoric and historic period Native American rock art. And we have a lot of rock art sites in Illinois uh, that we document uh, and we take Native American peoples to. Um, and the thing about rock art is rock art is inextricably uh, wound up in religion. All of our rock art sites are religious in nature. So you have to understand Native American religion if you're going to be able to interpret these sites on some level. And some of our sites go back uh, to the archaic period, which means they can be as old as 8,000 years old. Um, so we have, you know, a history of American, Native American religion written on the landscape going back 8,000 years. And I just saw an article the other day that discovered a site in Colombia that might have mammoths uh, on it. And if, the, and that, if that site checks out, mammoths went extinct about 13,500, 14,000 years ago. So that would be, and depending on what other symbols occur with that mammoth, 
that would take Native American belief systems in North America, well, in Columbia be South America, in the Americas, back about 14,000 years. Wow, that's amazing. So, uh, so. yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, like we said in the intro, he's a professor of anthropology, at Southern Illinois University, and uh, you're also the director of the, the CIA, CAI, Center for Archaeological Investigation. So uh, tell him what the center is and what you guys do. The center is an independent research uh, unit on the SIU campus, and we have been around for 40 years uh, under various directors, and we do archaeological research for uh, the state the federal government, uh, people like that. But we also do interact quite a bit with Native American peoples through the center. Uh, we hold uh, a large amount of uh, prehistoric Native American artifacts that were recovered from the Southwest in the 1980s uh, as part of a, a coal mining project that SIU was involved with. And for Peabody Energy to, uh, to get a permit to mine coal, they had to do archaeology. And this involved interaction with the Native American peoples out there, the Navajo and the Hopi. And we still hold those collections. Uh, but the last few years, uh, the Navajo and Hopi have been asking for them back. And it's their material. It's just taken them a long time to agree on what should be done with all this stuff. And, and part of it is because part of the items that they want back are religious in nature. And so the two groups have to agree on what's for, what what artifacts they want back and how these things are going to be disposed. It makes both groups happy. And we started the first phase of that last fall where representatives of the Navajo tribe and the Hopi nation, I mean, Hopi tribe, Navajo nation actually came to SIU to pick up uh, the first uh, transfer of artifacts, which were sacred objects. Uh, a lot of uh, ceramic vessels and things like that, that had been uh, buried with people and they took those back to the southwest with them so that's what we do so what originally got you interested in anthropology and specifically archaeology what got me interested in anthropology and archaeology can you see this book uh it's a little blocked out yeah, all about prehistoric cavemen yeah, I can see it now. When I was about eight years old, I went to the library and I checked this book out and it has a chapters like on the Lascaux cave paintings in France and the cave paintings in Spain. And I got so excited. I told my parents, this is what I want to do. And as um, once I got my degree, one of the things I got involved with to a large extent has been Native American rock art. And I had forgotten all about this book that this book was what got me interested in archaeology and rock art in the first place. And I was with my younger daughter at a science fair about 10 years ago, and they had books that they were getting rid of, and I reached over, and this was one of them. And it was the exact same book. And I was like, oh, that's what did it. That's why I'm doing what I do today. So never underestimate what books can do to kids, get them interested in. So anyway, I that's... Uh, where my initial interest came from. In the 1980s, I worked for the state of Illinois, and one of the things they had me doing was to uh, visit different rock art sites and, and do uh, documents to help preserve them. So that finally got me started actually going out to rock art sites. 
And then over the last 20 or so years, I have been involved with a group called the Eastern States Rock Art Research Association. And we have a website you can go to. We're pretty inactive at the moment. It's called esrara.org, E-S-R-A-R-A. And you can go there and you can see pictures of rock art from all over the eastern U.S. And so that's part of what I, I do. I'm president of that organization also. Uh, but uh, over the last 20 years, perhaps, I have been going out to rock art sites here in southern Illinois uh, that have never been adequately documented or investigated. And we've been recording them in details. And, and it's getting pretty cool because we have a lot of new techniques that we didn't used to have. We have photogrammetry. We can do. We can create 3D images of these now, and so there's a lot of cool things you can do with these sites and get information about them out to people. And at the same time, uh, you you don't have to exactly tell people where they are because a lot of sites are on private property, and some are on federal property, and they can get damaged through visitation. Uh, people don't mean to it, but the more people that you go out there, the the more they get damaged. And so, but you still want to tell people about it. So this is one way, what we're doing now, like with virtual visits to sites, is a way to get information out about them. And they hit a good example the other day, this, uh, this monolith that appeared in the desert out in the southwest. And uh, they're still not sure who put it up there. It looks like it came from 2001, a space odyssey, but it attracted so many people to the area in cars, in, in a helicopter, on foot that they damaged all the natural environment around there. And so it's been removed now. But that's the same sort of thing is, that can occur with rock art sites is that if they get too much visitation, people love them to death and they end up damaging them. And they are sacred sites. And so we like to control, um, control access to them so they don't get damaged. We do take people to them. I do a lot of, when Native Americans come through Southern Illinois, we always ask them if they want to go visit rock art sites. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But if they do, we take them out to ones because it's part of their heritage is Native American peoples. So. That's awesome. I know uh, for me, what got me interested in uh, archaeology actually was books like Treasure Island. So I was a book kid too. Uh, Treasure Island and uh, Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Not necessarily about archaeology, but uh, specifically what I'd like to do is uh, underwater archaeology. And so uh, mainly like shipwreck salvaging and all sure. that stuff. Underwater archaeology is becoming, uh, the, there is a national historic, national archaeological society called the Society for Historical Archaeology and Underwater Archaeology. It started out as just, but now it's the SHA and Underwater Archaeology because underwater archaeology has become such a big deal. Uh, and there's people uh, there. When I started out um, 30 years ago, there really was nowhere that you could get a degree in underwater archaeology. Now there are. There's at least three universities here in the U.S. that grant degrees in underwater, graduate degrees in underwater archaeology. Uh, East Carolina State. Uh, Oh, um, there's a one down, uh, West Florida University, and then there's, uh, I think, Texas A&M have degrees in it. And, you know, you can actually get a graduate degree and you can get a job. Uh, there are a lot of the federal government hires a lot of underwater archaeologists. There are a lot of Navy shipwrecks out in the Pacific that the Navy is interested in monitoring and protecting. And so people end up working for the federal government as marine archaeologists. 
so, so there are job opportunities also with that sort of thing. For sure. And uh, Ethan, do you know what kind of uh, field of archaeology you want to specialize in? Yeah, I'm kind of bouncing around at the moment in general, um, like actual area I want to do. But I'm mainly the thing that got me into it in the first place was actually Jurassic Park out of all things. Uh, not Indiana Jones for some reason. Um, I just I liked the very beginning where he's digging up dinosaur bones. But for some reason, I didn't like the dinosaur part. I just like the idea of doing stuff like that, um, which I was probably around eight at the time, but whatever. Um, but then I got into it original. Well, from there, I wanted to do stuff with either like the Vikings and Norway and Sweden and that kind of area, or I'd want to do um, like ancient hominids, like the Neanderthals, that kind of stuff. Um, well, there's a lot of research going on with both of those at the moment. If you ever go the national meetings for. Uh, international meetings for archaeology are is the Society for American Archaeology. It started out here in the U.S. Uh, gosh, about 75 years ago, and now it is an international society. But if you go to the SAAs, you'll see, you'll go to a symposium on people doing Viking archaeology, in uh, both in England and in Scandinavia. Um, and so you know that is going on in. Neanderthals are a big subject of research at the moment, and there are any number of universities that offer programs in that as well. A number of people are doing research in that, and it's pretty amazing how fast that field is changing. And a lot of it's all got to do with uh, DNA studies, and you know, finding at, when I went to graduate school, DNA studies were not available, so people would argue about are we related to Neanderthals based on morphology, like do we have early uh, Cro-Magnus skeletons that have uh, Neanderthal features, and that's what they would argue about. And uh, now we can go and look at DNA and find out that we do share DNA with Neanderthals. So there's a, a relationship there that people didn't know existed 40 years ago. That's amazing to see the progress that archaeology has been through since the early 1900s, for sure. Uh, but now getting into our subject of discussion, uh, we'll just start with uh, a broad question. And uh, it is, uh, what do you think the major themes are, if any, of Native American mythology, and what tribes share what similarities? Most of the tribes in North America share a similar, similar basic mythology, as do people around the world. They believe in an upper world where you have, like, celestial beings, winged beings, thunderbirds, animals like that. You have the world that we live on, uh, and then you have the underworld. And the underworld has serpents and snakes in it. Uh, and, and it also has spiritual beings. Again, some of these are, there are, in North American religion, there are creatures like uh, the horned serpent or the underwater panther. And we know a lot about this in Eastern North America because uh, real early in the 1600s and 1700s, people went out and they talked to groups uh, southeastern groups like the Cherokee and the Chickasaw and the Creek. And a lot of their traditional religion was still intact. So they would explain their mythologies to people. And again, we're looking at rock art. You can see this played out on the landscape. You can That is one place they're going out on the landscape and they're having ceremonies. And they're creating images that we know from accounts that were picked up in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, uh, 
we know what these uh, images are supposed to represent, and we see them on the landscape. So what it tells us is that the belief system in North America and the East goes back very far in time. It goes back several thousand years ago. It was in place, and it gets more elaborate through time. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's a broad similarity. Uh, we can interpret. It's very difficult to interpret uh, everything we see. Because it'd be like if, uh, if you're trying to interpret, if we have a nuclear war and the Bible and the New Testament and all that disappears and all you and you're an archaeologist 2000 years from now and you're trying to figure out Christianity and all you've got are these symbols. What I mean, what do you figure out? You can figure out that there are sky beings that are, uh, you know, angels. You can figure out that there are underworld beings. You can see different symbols that can represent Christ. You might see a sheep. You might see a fish. But the whole stories behind those are completely gone. And that's what we're dealing with with, with a lot of uh, religion in North America, uh, and the archaeology of religion. We can tell that it goes back very deep. But a lot of the stories are gone. Uh, and if we're lucky sometimes, and we do have a couple of sites like this in southern Illinois where you can see patterns in the rock face where all the symbols are going together and you can get an idea of what they're trying to tell you. But again, the, the, the most of that story is gone. So would you say it's a safe comparison uh, to compare the rock art sites with almost something like uh, a church or a holy site and uh, other religions? Oh yeah, it's very much rock art sites are, uh, they're parts of sacred landscapes. And, and this, again, is something that we have in people have all over the world. An, an example would be uh, uh, Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark landed on top of a mountain somewhere, somewhere uh, in Armenia or wherever that and there's never been a trace found of it. But that location is sacred uh, to Christians and to Jewish people and and uh, uh, Islamic people. But you can also go to Jerusalem and they'll show you like this is where or Bethlehem. And they'll show you, oh, this is the building where Christ was born. This is where his body was. This is where the tomb was. So all these things combine to form a landscape. And we have that here. We, we can see that in, in the eastern U.S. where we do have rock art sites. And these are parts of landscapes where people are coming out from their villages and they're holding ceremonies. And in some cases, what they're doing is they're creating the landscape by creating rock art sites. But in other cases, it's you might get a striking geological feature that is similar to what you see in Christianity or whatever, and it gets interpreted as a, a location where something important in uh, their religious history happened. Like this is where the creator came down. And we do have at least one location here in southern Illinois that is we believe is the centerpiece of a sacred landscape because it's got so many burial mounds on it, it's got so many rock art sites surrounding it, that we believe it is one of the, that it formed the center of a sacred landscape going back around 2,000 years ago. So we do see elements of that, and uh, we also know that these landscapes existed because people were working with Native Americans up in the Great Lakes. Uh, up until fairly recently, there were people up there that were still creating rock art, and they would explain the whole, this whole idea of landscapes to people. And say, well, you know, we mark some of these locations where things happened with rock art. But in talking to them, uh, the man who was doing the research found out that they didn't map, they didn't mark 90% of the locations. So they had this 
metal map of all these sacred spots and only 10% of them, you know, they would mark with rock art for whatever reason. Uh, but, but they did have this whole idea of, you know, and, and they would explain to you, like if you asked, well, what is this rock? And they'd say, oh, well, that's where the creator sat down, you know, or something like that. And they knew that. But if you didn't know the stories, you would not know that. But that was in their in their mindset. So what specific sites have you come across in your own research with uh, religious sites? Uh, well, there is one you can go visit here in southern Illinois, and it is called Millstone Bluff. And it is owned by the Shawnee National Forest, and it is in uh, Pope County, Illinois. And you can go out to Millstone, and it has uh, interpretive. Tra it has a trail that leads to the top of the bluff, and there is a complete Mississippian, which is a uh, last prehistoric culture in southern Illinois village from 1250 to about 1500 A.D. is on top of that bluff. And because that bluff was never plowed, it's such a steep bluff, farmers couldn't get a plow up there. And if you know anything about southern Illinois, farmers were so desperate in the late 1800s that they took plows up everywhere that you wouldn't believe they plowed. Uh, but they, they couldn't plow Millstone Bluff because it was so steep. So you go out there and you can still see the depressions from the houses. The houses were partially underground as if they had basements. Uh, and you can still see those depressions and you can see the layout of the village and you can see the plaza. But as part of that uh, village, and that village arrived there full-blown around 1250 A.D., we think they came from another major site in southern Illinois, which was the Kincaid site, which is like the Cahokia site. It's a, a Mississippian center with temple mounds and elaborate beliefs and um, large population and for uh, defensive walls. And for some reason, Kincaid starts breaking apart around 1250 A.D. It starts fissioning. And people are breaking off from it. And one of these groups breaks off from Kincaid and arrives. And so they've got their belief system intact. They came from like, it would be like coming from a, a, a big city where you go to church and the cathedral every week to a little spot on the edge of nowhere. Uh, and all of a sudden, this very sophisticated religion appears in that area. And so what they did at Millstone was there are three rock art groups. And probably is the first thing they did they put their rock art on the landscape. And so they were put their view of the universe on the landscape. And if you go out the millstone, what you'll see are three, there are three rock art groups out there. Only one of which is interpreted at the moment. The other one is not interpreted because it's too dangerous. It's got a sheer drop off on one side. And the other, and the one in the middle is not interpreted because it's in such bad shape, but the three groups all go together. And, and we realized this about 15 years ago that the Eastern group was all uh, birds, all upper world creatures. And then when you went to the West, it was the exact opposite. It was all serpents and underwater monsters, no birds at all. And the group in the center is the combination. So they're laying out their view of the universe for you on the landscape. The upper world's in the East, the underworld is in the West. And in between, you get a combination. And if you draw lines between them, if you draw a line east-west, and then you draw a line through the center group, what it does is it forms a cross. And one of the big Mississippian symbols is a cross and circle. And a circle symbolizes the entire universe, and a cross can symbolize a sacred fire, or it symbolizes the four, uh, four directions. And so in, in effect, what they did at Millstone was, as the first thing, that when those people arrived there, 
And you have to remember, they had a complicated, they had a very sophisticated belief system, uh, probably as complex as ours. First thing they did was create a cross and circle all over their entire village. Their village sits at the center of a cross and circle. And so it's telling you also that uh, the everyday and the sacred are combined. They're not separate. It's not like you walk off. Well, we live on this bluff, but we're going over there to go to church. No, they're all, it's all together. It's all part of daily life. And indeed, from where their, village, their farm fields, we believe, were located north of Millstone along Bay Creek. So they would have had to, every day as they went down the farm, they would have had to come back up and pass by those rock art groups. So this rock art is not hidden. It's out there for them to see. It's a public expression of what they believe. So every day, once again, they're getting involved with their religion when they're coming to and from their farm fields. And the other thing is that in one of the groups, in the East group, uh, and again, we didn't know this until 15 years ago. Um, uh, I went out with my wife, who's a Shawnee National Forest archaeologist, and another a photographer. And we documented that group in detail. And when we did that, we discovered there was a hidden pattern inside that group. And what it is, it's a pattern that repeats of a giant falcon, a human figure with one arm up and one arm down, and another image that is, it looks like a, a, a stick with, oh, maybe two balls at the top. And that symbol is called the Bilo Darrow. And if you put the three of those symbols in combination, what they represent, there is a mythological figure that occurs over and over on Mississippian art. And it is a image of a man who's wears like a, who's got falcon wings, who wears a bilobed arrow as his headdress. And, uh, and that's what they're doing. That's who it is. It is this very important mythological figure. And they've exploded him on the landscape, just like you would like a, a car engine or something, or when somebody, you want to show all the components of something. And we never realized it until 15 years ago what they were up to. And uh, then all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is what they're doing. They're giving us his important attributes. They're laying them out on the landscape. And they would have put them immediately together. They would have realized immediately who was represented there. Uh, but it took us a long time uh, to figure it out. And if you go out there, the, si the interpretive sign won't tell you that because the interpretive signs are put up before we discovered that. So um, hopefully they will get straightened out in the future. But the figure that's being portrayed. Uh, he persisted in uh, Siouan mythology into the early 1900s, and people doing work with the Winnebago collected myths regarding this figure, and the Winnebago called him uh, Redhorn. And Redhorn is the, uh, the best analogy I can give. He's someone, something like Hercules. He goes on adventures, and he fights with the, uh, maybe the forces of the underworld. He fights with other mythological beings. But his attributes include he can wear that he can have a falcon. He's got falcon attributes, and he also wears the bilobed arrow on his head. And what the bilobed arrow actually represents is the myth of Redhorn, as it was collected in the 1930s, is that he was having there, there are two versions of it. One is he was having an argument with his brother one day while his brother was butchering a deer, and his brother got so angry at him that he grabbed the deer lungs out of the deer and he threw him, he hit Redhorn in the chest with him. And those are the two lobes. Those are the deer lungs. And after that, Redhorn was as fast as a deer. And so when he's wearing that bilobed hero address, he's telling you that he's Redhorn. Uh, he's got that, he's wearing the deer lungs on his head. 
And there's another version of that myth, the uh, same sort of thing, where he got into an argument with his father. And his father did the same thing, threw, the, threw a set of deer lungs at him and hit him. And then he became as fast as a deer. And so this was, this is really, this is something I wasn't realized until about, well, maybe 30 years ago, where all of a sudden people started interpreting images on Mississippi and shell and copper art. And then on the landscape is Redhorn. And so we have this myth that persisted into the 1930s. And we can trace its origin back uh, almost a thousand years. And that's one of the only myths we can do that with. Uh, and even then the myth may have changed through time, but a lot of myths are, are very, very resistant to change. They're very important. Other things can change, but a lot of these stories don't change very much at all. And uh, so now we have, so we actually know who this figure is that we see in Mississippian art. We know, we know at least one of his stories. Uh, and again, there would have been a number of stories about him, but that, that's pretty cool to be able to actually interpret that figure and see who it is and know who, who they were carving on the landscape there, that he's the center of what they're doing. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I'll let Ethan ask the next question if he wants to. Yeah. Um... Ask me about Rocker. <laughs> is it? Um... Oh. Yes, we have religious images you can go visit. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Um, so, uh, what are you've you explained a little bit of the myths, but what are some more popular ones and other like uh, important ones, either religious or non-religious myths? Well, there are a lot of myths all over that were collected all over the Eastern U.S. And you've got to remember a lot of these myths were collected in the early 1900s. Uh, one man who collected them was named John Swanton, who was an ethnologist. Uh, some of them do seem to be uh, very traditional, and we do see things like on the landscape or in art that indicates a myth go back way back. But sometimes, I think there like there's like one myth that Swan collected that may have had a horse in it. Uh, well, they didn't have horses prehistorically, so what it tells you is that their mythology is changing and things like that. Uh, there is another myth that's real uh, common among Algonquin people. And these are today Algonquin people mainly live uh, Eastern US and up in Canada. But at one time, like Southern Illinois had Alg were Algonquin peoples living here. And we see images uh, on the rock face. There is a trickster called the Great Hare or the Great Rabbit. And he's kind of like Loki in Scandinavian mythology. And we see images uh, at least up in, uh, there's one up in, Canadi in the Canadian Shield of, uh, his name is Nanabush, um, and there's a painting of him up in Canada, um, and we have got that exact same image carved in rock down here in southern Illinois. So we also got something that has to do with the Nanabush bush myth that is here. Uh, in terms of uh, one of our problems in, in Illinois is that we don't have we don't have continuity all the way from prehistory or pre-contact to the present day. Uh, I mean, when you work the, the Navajo and the Hopi have been living out where they live for a thousand years, and they know the stories and they can interpret those rock art sites and those rock art sites are still part of their religion. Here in Illinois, uh, we have a long tradition of rock art that goes from 
oh gosh, back maybe as far back as 8,000 years until the Mississippian period at around 1500 AD. And then Illinois is abandoned completely. Uh, the Indians leave. And uh, we don't know exactly what is going on. It may be environmental problems. Uh, they can't support people anymore. The weather is changing. These big Mississippian centers are collapsing and people are moving elsewhere. And so you get a break. Uh, and instead of going all the way through and having the same people live here for 8,000 years, uh, you get a break at around 1500 BC, I mean 1500 AD. And then starting in 1650s, 1670s, other Native American groups start coming in from the north. And those would be uh, groups like the Salk and the Potawatomi and the Kickapoo come in from the north. And they are completely unconnected with the prehistoric art tradition of the state. So they cannot interpret for you uh, what you see on the rock face. It, it, I mean, there may be similarities with their religion, but they are not Mississippian peoples, and they cannot interpret that for you. So we do have this break that occurs, and that, that does create a, an issue. Sorry for the interruption of the podcast, but I just want to put this plug in here for Royal Family Kids Camp Belvedere, number 242, which is a summer camp that I've been a part of for a while now, and which is a summer camp for foster kids, giving them a week to grow and experience love in the presence of God. So essentially what we do is we go camping with them. We do uh, a ton of activities through the week that just help to inspire them. And uh, because they have such hard lives, we dedicate this one week to making it the best week of their entire year. What I'm asking is that you please consider supporting this camp as it means a lot to me. And you can support them by going to their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash RFKC Belvedere forward slash. Thank you. So from an archaeological standpoint, are there really any mysteries around Native American mythology that archaeologists have yet to fully understand? Like any baffling enigmas yet? Oh, yeah. I would say rock art is uh, particularly an enigma, uh, simply because a lot of the techniques we've got have just developed in the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, we have a, a, one technique that's only come around about 15 years, and it's called, it's called PXRF, or Portable X-ray Fluorescence. And this is an instrument that you can actually take out to rock art sites where there are paintings. And you can point it at the painting, and it will send an X-ray signal at the painting, and it will tell you what its elemental composition is. And the importance of that is that other, it, it, otherwise, if you wanted to know what those paintings were made of, you would have to damage them. You would have to scrape off part of that pigment. You would have to take it into the lab and analyze it. With a PXRF machine, you can find out the elemental composition of paintings without damaging them. And the importance of that is all of a sudden you can look about over broad parts of North America and you can see what their paint recipes were. You can see if they're using similar paints in similar, you know, in far apart parts of the country. Here in Illinois, most of our paintings turned out to be made of iron oxide. Very simple paint. What they're doing is they go get, uh, we have a lot of iron in uh, sandstone formations. And they would uh, also, you can get hematite and limonite. And they would grind that up and they can make a red powder out of that. And they mix that with water and they would make the paintings. And the thing about it is it's very resistant to uh, 
uh, I guess, erosion. The paintings fade, but they're still there. We have paintings that are a thousand years old that have been exposed to the weather for the last thousand years. They're faded. They're pink now. They're not bright red anymore, but they're still there. Unlike a modern paint that would go away. But the other thing was we did, we went to one site in Southern Illinois and we used the PXRF uh, analysis of the paintings in that site. And we found out that one of the paintings was anomalous and it contained gypsum. And so what's the importance of gypsum? Uh, well, we Doing archaeology, we've known since the 1970s, at least, that Native Americans were going into caves for thousands of years, and they're mining gypsum. That's where it occurred. But we didn't know what they were doing with it. We knew they were going after it, but what are they doing with gypsum? Uh, and and you got to realize also that caves are dangerous places. They're entrances to the underworld. So people are doing dangerous journeys into the underworld to get gypsum for some reason and doing something with it. Anyway, uh, both here in Southern Illinois, when we analyzed this one painting, and there's also another painting down in Alabama, they were finding gypsum in the paintings. And so, and gypsum is a, a constituent also of stucco. And so by putting gypsum into a paint mixture, uh, it'll help the painting adhere to the, to the rock surface. But the, you know, the significance is that they don't, find, they don't just find gypsum laying around. They have to make a dangerous journey into the underworld to get it, to come up to the upper world and create paintings. So it tells you that all this is part of a big spiritual journey. And there are Native Americans today that do not like caves, people who have traditional beliefs because of this belief that caves are entrances to the underworld. You know, and so it, uh, it, some Native Americans, when you uh, they're like anybody else. Different people have different belief systems. Uh, but I've talked to some people who seem uh, different Native Americans, uh, Cherokee, who you're having a normal conversation with them, and all of a sudden you get onto something like witchcraft, or you get onto caves, and you find out that that traditional belief system is still functioning on some level with those people. Uh, you know. Uh, that's one of the things I would point out is that we do take Native Americans to see these rock art sites. And about probably 15 years ago, uh, there was a man who was here in Southern Illinois. His name was Roger Naganonosh. And he was an elder of the Maganawan First Nation up in Canada. And they don't call Indian groups tribes in Canada. They call them First Nations or First Nations people because they're the First Nations. Anyway, Roger was a traditional uh, leader uh, of the Maganawan uh, First Nation, and he came down here for a, a conference, and he's real interested in rock art. And so I took him around to see these different rock art sites, and it was a very different experience because as an archaeologist, I'm interested in recording these sites systematically and scientifically, but they typically don't speak to me. But they spoke to Roger. They were still alive to him. Uh, and so when he would go to these sites, it would be a sacred experience for him. He would leave offerings. He would do prayers. Uh, and so it was a completely different experience. It makes you realize that these sites are sacred sites, and they are still alive to Native American peoples. They may not be alive to non-traditional people, but to Native American peoples, they're still very important. Uh, I was trying to think what else he had to do. 
Uh, all right, and anyway, that's the major point I had to make about that. Uh, I have taken other Native American peoples to other sites uh, and had somewhat similar experiences, but not as profound as, as taking him to see them. And uh, again, uh, we, this last year we took, uh, oh, I think about a year ago, we had a, a number of Native Americans came through Southern Illinois to meet with the Forest Service. We had Cherokee, we had Chickasaw. We took them out to see rock art sites. And then, again, we've been interacting with the Navajo and the Hopi, returning their artifacts from Black Mesa to them. And also, as part of that, we take them out to see rock art sites if they're interested. So we do a lot of interaction with Native Americans because these are their sites. Uh, and so that's that's one of the reasons they're important to preserve them. Uh, I, they, I will say this. They are under siege, not just here in Illinois. They're under siege all across the eastern U.S., it's a combination of too much visitation. It's a, co a combination of vandalism. Vandalism is a recurrent problem here in Southern Illinois where we go out and find out people are vandalizing the sites. They're painting over them or doing other things to them. Uh, carving the images out uh, is going on down here. So, And then visitation itself can just hurt the sites. And then the other thing you sometimes get but we haven't had an episode of this in a long time. But it's very offensive to Native Americans is that you have people who are into shamanism, you know, modern day shamanism, which is going into a trance and experiencing it, uh, a vision. Uh, and a lot of that is very popular out in the Southwest and out in California. And that is incredibly offensive to Native Americans. Uh, if they catch somebody or if somebody is have, going out and visiting one of their sites and, you know, conducting a religious uh, ceremony out there. And we have at least one site here that has been damaged by that sort of activity. Or when I first went out there and recorded it 20 years ago, uh, I had all the designs down. And so we have maps and photographs of it from 20 years ago. Now there's a carving of a, of a giant bird out there that wasn't there 20 years ago. So somebody probably holding their own ceremony went out and damaged that site. And the analogy I would be, use, it's like going into a, a Christian church or a Jewish synagogue, if you're not Christian or Jewish, and holding your own ceremonies and then creating things in there that have nothing to do with it. And you shouldn't do it. You know, it's just not a nice thing to be doing to these things. And I did, catch, I did go to a talk about 20 years ago. Uh, from a Native American uh, on this sort of thing. At that time, they were having a lot of trouble with New Age people at uh, rock art sites in the Southwest. And boy, she was livid about it and what they were doing and, uh, and creating new images again uh, and things like that. So, so what do you, yeah, so what do you think the steps are to help preserve those sites then? If you go out there, don't create any new images, please. Don't leave anything. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So what do you think the steps would be to preserve those sites then? What else do archaeologists and government need to How work together to do? Uh, on private property, uh, I respect private property. I don't take people to sites on private property without the permission of the landowners. Um, on forest service, on federal land, we the we do know people want to see these things. So there are sites that are open to the public where they can go see it. 
Then go to Millstone Bluff. There's another one on Forest Service land down here called Buffalo Rock that you can go see. There are other sites that are being protected uh, by not revealing their locations. Uh, and it's simply to cut down the visitation to these sites so they don't get damaged. Uh, there, there is a site on state land that you can go to that is on the Randolph-Jackson County line, which is the biggest rock art site in Illinois. It's got over 200-something images, and the rock art there probably goes back about 2,000 years. And it's called Piney Creek Nature Preserve. And that is open to the public, and you can go down there and visit it whenever you want to. And Piney Creek was open to the public about, I recorded all the rock art there about 20 years ago. And at that same time, the agency that owned it made the decision to open it to the public because they thought one of the ways to control the vandalism that was going on down there, and it is heavily vandalized, is to encourage visitation uh, because people don't like to get caught doing bad things. So if you have people going down there to visit, it cuts down on the vandalism. This is the same thing that happened in Millstone Bluff, which the Forest Service owns and didn't go visit. They were having bad vandalism at Millstone about, I'd guess it's almost 30 years ago now, because they had a close to the public to protect it. And what they decided to do was to open it up. And they put in trails and walkways and interpretive signs. And all of a sudden, the vandalism stopped. Because same thing, because the people who do that sort of thing don't want to get caught, you know. But what we are doing too is, you know, there's only so much you can do. One of the things we do do anymore, we're moving on to like 3D imaging, photogrammetry, and we're trying to create records of these sites as they exist now. So if they do get damaged in the future, we know what they look like at this point in time. And I have been involved in restoring two different sites at least that got vandalized, where uh, people went out and, and chalked all over the designs, and then we had to go out and get the, get the chalk off. And it's not as easy as it sounds. You have to figure out how to get it off without actually causing more damage. And so some, when you go see a site, sometimes um, what you have to be aware of is that the site looks the way it does is because it's being monitored, it's being protected. You know, So even the sites that are open to the public uh, we go out and visit them fairly constantly to make sure that they are not being vandalized and, and, or, and that there's not something out there that we need to take care of. And vandalism on state or federal land, you can be prosecuted for uh, and end up in prison for. On private land, do whatever you want, which is unfortunate. Uh, so if someone damages a site in private land, there's nothing we can do about it. The landowner can go after them if they know who it is, but that's about it. But it's there's nothing else you can do about it. And just to be nice, just to, just to be clear, this is a worldwide problem. I gave a tour of Piney Creek, which is the one on the Randolph-Jackson County line. It's got a lot. It's got a lot of vandalism down there. A lot of names, a lot of repainting going on, stuff like that. I gave a tour to about to a group from England about seven years ago, and I was apologizing for it. And one of the guys said, "Oh, don't bother." He said, "Same thing goes on in England." He said, "All our sites are vandalized," you know. And so it's it's like it's a worldwide thing, you know, trying to protect places, trying to protect really important places from stupid people, you know. <laughs>
Yeah. yeah, that's not something you should really have to do. That's unfortunate. Yeah. So, uh, Ethan, you can ask the next question if you want. Um, so, my main question whenever I first thought of this was, like, how has um, the mythology changed over time? Whether interaction, well, well, with interaction with the colonists that came over and just naturally, how has it kind of How has Native American religion changed through time? Um, it did have effects. Um, what you do find is that the Native American belief system does have very deep roots. But by the 1600s and 1700s, uh, Native Americans started feeling that they were under siege and everything was collapsing, at least in the East. And what you see are a series of prophets develop who are advocating that they return to traditional beliefs and traditional religion. And one of the most famous ones is the Shawnee prophet, um, Tecumseh's brother. And what he's telling people is all these problems that we're experiencing, we're losing our land, we're, we're, we've got alcoholism going on. We've got violence going on in our village. It's all because you've fallen away from a traditional way of life. And so what he advocated to them was that they return to traditional practices, uh, give up all these things that they had gotten from Europeans. If they did this, then the creator would uh, once again give favor, return power to them. And that when the creator did that, they would have the power to oppose Americans and stop losing their lands. So when, when you hear about Tecumseh, it often portrays Tecumseh as the moving figure in this. And the prophet is kind of his like less bright, younger brother. Uh, but the prophet was a, was very important to Native. His, his message had a profound impact on Native American people. And you saw... And there are historic accounts of all these Native American people in the Great Lakes region are changing their way of life because of this resistance and this return to traditional beliefs. Um, so you get that. There are also is evidence that uh, Native American religion did change through time as a result of interaction with uh, uh, Europeans. As far as we can tell, the earliest myths or encounters with Native Americans, they did not believe in a creator. They believed in a number of spirits, a number of uh, Manitou, spiritual beings. They didn't, but they didn't believe in one creator like God. And by the time you get to the Shawnee prophet, 1700s, 1800s, all of a sudden they're talking about a creator. So their religion changed also. A lot of their religious beliefs go very deep, but they did, this a creator being did seem to become part of Native American religion, at least in the Eastern U.S., uh, by about the 1700s. But one of the striking things is 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 how deep the roots, uh, what the people of Native American religion run, um, what the Native Americans were doing in the 1800s as part of Tecumseh's Rebellion, War of 1812. I mean, the religious message that is being passed on to them is like an 8,000-year-old message in the eastern U.S. And, and they respond positively to it. So there is that, that deep-seated religious beliefs uh, in the East. Christianity did not wipe them all out. Uh, you know, it persisted to a large to a large extent. And still today, Native Americans are not gone. Uh, they are still with us. <laughs> I always like to remind people no. of that, that Native Americans are still with us. They are, you know, you can 
Uh, I know number. I know a lot of Native American people. They are. They. It isn't all archaeology. You just don't excavate them up. They are living people, and mm-hmm. you know, like I said, we have the Navajo and the Hopi come through. I'm a member. I'm a, on the uh, national board for the Cherokee Trail of Tears. So at least before coronavirus hit. Uh, we would have a national conference every year, and the Cherokee would come, the Creek would come, the Chickasaw would come, all the southeastern groups would come, and so you know, uh, and they're very concerned about their heritage. These, you know, their Native Americans are part of the world today. So, you should have had a Native American on your show. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to get one. <laughs> That'd be a good episode, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes you need to have. Uh, to get someone to get their perspective, uh, yeah, for sure. The best person would probably be this this man I mentioned earlier, Roger Naganonash, but I haven't okay. met him in 15 years. But he was very impressive uh, to hear him talk about native what religion meant to him, you know. And that's where you get the idea that a lot of these, again, we look at rock art sites and you know we scramble around. People take photographs of them, look, and they chalk them in and all that and you, you realize boy everybody's acting badly here we're this is like a church that we're in you shouldn't be doing what you're doing here you know so right so we got a little bit into what my next question was but i wanted to get more into how native belief systems helped or hindered uh european colonization well that's what i was just talking about is that uh and by the 1600s, at least, and definitely by the 1700s, uh, European colonization was creating a lot of damage to Native American societies. And initially, it started out Native Americans were partners in a lot of this. They, they, it's not always right to portray them entirely as victims. Uh, they were receiving things that they wanted. They participated in the fur trade. Uh, they would get things uh, that made their lives easier. It, they would exchange furs for a metal kettle. They would, you know, maybe exchange furs to get a gun. Uh, they, the main thing they were after was cloth. Uh, 99% of what they were trading furs for is cloth because cloth was a lot nicer than wearing leather and furs all the time. So for a long, long time, they were partners in this and they were getting what they wanted out of it. Uh, this all started to change in the late 1700s with the uh, development of the American Republic. And all of a sudden, the American Republic starts expanding into the Midwest, into Indiana, into Ohio, into Illinois. And it's no longer a partnership. It's more of uh, settlement and expropriation. Uh, they want lands to settle, and they want the Native American peoples to go away. And so what happens is uh, Native Americans by the late 1700s, in the Midwest at least, are terribly depressed. Uh, Their villages are being ripped apart by alcoholism. Fur traders are giving them alcohol. And and sometimes uh, people think it's exaggerated, but if you read the accounts from the time period, those villages were being ripped apart by alcoholic violence, uh, what the fur traders were trading them. So they're demoralized. They've got alcoholic violence. It's destroying their villages. They're losing all their lands. You know, somebody who grew up in Ohio, who was born in Ohio, now finds himself living in Illinois because they've lost their lands in Ohio. And, uh, and they just can't see any way out of this. 
And so then you get prophets arising. And again, the best known one, he's, but he's one of a long series of prophets. We know there were ones before him. The best known one is the Shani prophet. And, and he's operating out of this traditional religious system. And he's telling people, you've got to go back to traditional religion. You've got to go back to traditional beliefs. Uh, you've got to get rid of all this stuff that Europeans are giving you. You've got to quit trying to live like a European. You've got to live in a sacred way um, and all this. And he teaches them new dances to do, new religious dances to do. He teaches them new religious songs to do. And the payoff for all of this, and, and Native American people, um, uh, they're profoundly affected by his message. Uh, and, and to some extent, he's preaching to the choir. He's preaching to people who are waiting to hear this message. And, and what he's essentially telling them is God is on our side. If you do the right thing, God is on our side and we will defeat the Americans. And so, you know, his message had a tremendous impact on Native American peoples. Uh, so that's one of the things you see, the, the, this backlash to Europeans and the colonization. Their backlash is to go back to traditional religion. And that's where the, that's where the opposition lies. It's not just uh, Tecumseh and fighting. It's this religion uh, is driving a lot of that. For sure. And uh, I have one more question, unless Ethan has one. Uh, I do have a question. Um, awesome. You've talked about rock art, and I know you specialize in it, so obviously you know a lot about it. But is there any other like religious things that they do, like uh, similar to it, like ceremonies, that kind of stuff, that involve religion? You mean that have traveled down to us? That I mean, archaeology-wise? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the best example wouldn't be uh, the Cahokia site. Uh, where people have excavated at the Cahokia site. And Cahokia, by the 1200s, to some degree, uh, appears to be the center of a lot of this. And one of the things you've got to... I always view Cahokia as being more like Rome in uh, the Middle Vatican. East. Yeah, the Vatican. It's uh, uh, It's got political and religious power. You know, the yeah. Catholic Church during the Middle Ages had political power. It had armies uh, that could make people do what it wanted. And if you think about Cahokia that same way, where it's both got political power and it's got religious power at the same time, you get a little closer understanding of what it may have been like. But at Cahokia, even there are workshops where we find the debris from making a lot of sacred artifacts that are sent, shipped out all across the eastern U.S., they're making uh, religious images on copper plates that are shipped to other Mississippian sites. They're making pipes. Well, they're not pipes initially. They're they're making idols, statues out of red pipestone that then are sent out from Cahokia to other Mississippian centers. And so we find these things. So it gives us some idea of this network and, and what is going on at that time and the importance of Cahokia to a large part of it is a center of this. And there's been some discussion recently where they think the Mississippian period actually and what went on during it, uh, it, it it's like almost overnight you have a transformation. Uh, people are living prior to that. We've got a late woodland period where people are kind of living in roundhouses and they're not really getting to end. They're, they're doing, they've got native forms of agriculture, uh, but kind of a generalized way of life and overnight it seems to change 
to all of a sudden people are starting to live in towns, they're living in square houses, they've got this complex religious system, and there is now have been suggestions that what may have happened is that a figure like the Shawnee prophet developed in, around in the 1100 and passed this message on. And all of a sudden people are trying to live in this new manner that they've been taught. So the Cahokia site itself is a, is, is a sacred site in one big religion. And it may be that it's telling us that something happened at that time that created this. Yeah, for sure. And I've been out to Cahokia as well. And you go there and you see these huge mounds and you imagine the, the construction projects and the villages and the people who were living there. And you can almost see why it's such an important site to these Mississippian people because it's huge. You climb to the top of Monk's Mountain and you can see the St. Louis skyline in the, in the distance. It's amazing. Yeah. You can it totally see. One thing to remember, too, is it was constructed in a series of stages. And we know that through archaeology. And it may be something like where the Maya did renewal. Um, renewed their sites every 52 years. You can, when you look at the soil, you can see that Mux Mound today is a result of a series of build, building stages. It keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger through time, where people are coming and making it larger as part of a ceremony. Uh, you know, every number of years they're coming there and doing that. But it's only one of a number of centers. Uh, mo there were. Other Mississippian centers in that same area in East St. Louis, they were, there was the St. Louis Mound Group. All those have been destroyed by urbanization. And it's fortunate that the Cahokia site, uh, very early on, there was an archaeologist named Warren Moorhead who had done work there. And he badgered the state of Illinois about making it into a state park. And that was early 1900s, 1920s. And if Moorhead hadn't done that, probably it wouldn't be there today. Uh, it would have gone the way of the other big Mississippian uh, sites in the St. Louis area. And even what you see today is just a, a reflection, a pale reflection of what would have been out there. There would have been numerous other mounds out there, uh, the Woodhenge, other sorts of sites going on in that same area. Wow. So what's the comparison between sites like Cahokia and these mounds in North America to... So, such stuff like the the Mayan pyramids in Central America, are they using these mounds for similar purposes, like human yeah, sacrifice? Or are, there's no there has never been a connection demonstrated between Mesoamerica and North America. Again, it, it seems to be people doing similar things and having similar ideas. I mean, we see religious symbols in Southern in Illinois, like we see a cross in the circle. You can go to Europe and you can see that. You can go to a Viking site and you can see a cross in a circle. It doesn't mean they're sharing ideas. It's it, They're using symbols in the same way. I mean, they have the same idea. Well, you know, the universe is a circle and there are four directions and I'll put those inside my circle. And it doesn't mean they're in contact, but they're coming up with similar ideas. And that seems to be what's going on uh, with the Mississippian period. We never, ever, ever, despite all the archaeology that has been done, have found a single artifact from Mesoamerica anywhere. So they seem to be doing it on their own. It's a similar sort of ideas. Uh, there may have been some sort of contact, but whatever it was, it wasn't profound. It was people just thinking in the same way. Um, and when they do use, um, they do use mounts pretty much the same way they do in Mesoamerica. Uh, I, again, like about 30 or 40 years ago, people 
kind of viewed the Mayans as peaceful, kind of religious people. And now that we can read their writing, uh, this has been a big breakthrough only in the last 20 years where the Mayan uh, hieroglyphs have been deciphered. You find out that they're very, they have a lot of kings. They have a lot of leaders. They have a lot of chiefs. They have a lot of warfare going on between all these centers. That's pretty similar to what the Mississippians are doing. Uh, and what you see at Cahokia, probably the, the figure who lived, the person who lived on top of Monk's Mound was probably uh, a religious figure who also had political power. You can call him the great son. He probably claimed descent from the heavens and that, you know, uh, similar to what the Chinese emperors used to do, the mandate of heaven. I'm your ruler because God says I am. And so he would not only be a, he would kind of be like a pope in the Middle Ages where he would convey God's message, but at the same time, he had political power to make people do what he wanted. And he and his family would live on top of the main mound. And a number of those other mounds around it are where other important people lived. Then you also have burial mounds out there. There are burial mounds at the Cahokia site where important people are being buried. And the other thing about that Cahokia site is that that entire site is planned. It's laid out on a uh, on an axis. We can see an axis that runs through it. So again, this is uh, people during that period were pretty complicated, pretty complex. You know, they weren't just let's go build a mound. <laughs> they're laying these urban centers out. You know. Yeah. Right. So one final question before we wrap up: uh, How do you think native beliefs and native culture are going to evolve and change over time and, and, and into the future? That, I can't answer that because I'm not a Native American person. I do know that the Native Americans I deal with from uh, the Southwest, the Navajo and the Hopi, are still very traditional. And they may, have, they may be Christian, but at the same time, that traditional belief system is functioning at the same time. Uh, we had to have, this is probably about, I, I'd guess about... Uh, Ten years ago, we had uh, Navajo and Hopi come out to visit our curation center where we store all their artifacts for them. That's an important thing to remember is we're not hiding this stuff from them. We're storing it for them until they ask for it back. They know we've got it. And they came out about ten years ago to visit it. And um, one of the people who came out, uh, he lives in both worlds. He works in their historic preservation office, but at the same time, he's a religious leader. And uh, because we had all these sacred objects out there, uh, we were in spiritual danger. So he had to conduct a ceremony and cleanse our entire curation facility and cleanse us to protect us from spiritual danger from being in association with all these objects that had power. And in some cases, it could be dangerous power. So, yeah, you, you get that sort of thing. I also met a woman uh, who was a Cherokee lady. And this is about five years ago. And she was very modern and, until she got on the subject of religion. And she was a Christian. And she would talk about going to church. And then one time I was having a conversation with her, and she got off on the subject of witches. And she said, if the, she said, the one good thing Christianity has done is get rid of witches. 
And she said, I know this man. He lives in our community. He's a witch. And, uh, you know, and he's an evil man, you know. And so it's, and this belief in witches goes way back in Native American religion. So here you have this woman. Uh, on one level, she's, you know, she goes, she's a Christian. On the other, on another level, this traditional belief system and beliefs in witches is still going on at the same time. And this is after how many years of contact we've had with the Cherokee and and they, you know, and they very much live in the modern world. But at the same time, just like the Hopi and the Navajo, these traditional belief systems are still still functioning. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, I just want to say thank you for joining us today. And uh, I appreciated uh, being able to talk with you about Native American mythology. Yeah, well, very I'm happy to have been here. So take care. I've got to run to a meeting. So I'll see you guys later. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. All Thank right. You. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. We'll wrap this up. And next week, we'll have another episode on a historical subject. And this is likely going to be another interview, as I've been trying to set up several uh, with the podcast going forward. And uh, I just think you guys will highly enjoy it. But as usual, I'd like to give a shout out to Anchor, our podcasting service. That's been a miracle in making this episode, as we really couldn't have done it without it. And if you guys have ever wanted to make your own podcast, it's a great service to do just that, and I highly recommend it. More importantly, I'd like to give a shout out to you guys as our listeners as we continue to embark on this podcast. And for those of you who have liked and been following the Facebook page, the community page, and our Twitter page as we continue to grow. We're now up to around... 90 plus followers on the Facebook page and if you guys are watching on our YouTube channel we obviously now have a YouTube channel as well so make sure you go check that out at History's Mysteries and the link will be in the description to this episode but other than that I just want to thank you guys for your support and uh, with all that being said thanks guys and have a nice week. Carpe diem.